Passing Judgment listeners, welcome to our podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and in this episode, we're joined by my friend, Dr. Jack Pitney. He's the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Politics at Claremont McKenna College. He's an expert on the presidency, American politics, and public policy. He's the author of three books, The Politics of Autism, After Reagan, and An Un-American, The Fake Patriotism of Donald J. Trump. I'm recording this introduction because I wanted to tell you that we recorded our episode with Jack before the insurrection in the Capitol. And so if you're wondering why we didn't mention it, that's why we didn't know it was going to happen. But I think you're really going to enjoy this episode because he actually previews a lot of things that did happen and a lot of things that could happen going forward. It helped me to make sense of the last four years and to try and think about what we can expect out of the next few years. Dr. Jack Pitney, welcome and thank you for passing judgment with us. Oh, thank you. We met back on election night 2016, and it has, what a four years it has been. If I'm remembering this correctly, did you actually go home that night and change your party registration from Republican to no party preference? That's right. Uh, as soon as Trump declared victory, had my laptop with me, I just decided no party preference. Uh, there's no way that the Republican Party is uh, going to be the Republican Party of George H.W. Bush, whom I served in the campaign. And I said, I'm out and uh, haven't looked back. I remember that we met again when we did live commentary for the inauguration. We were on set together. And I remember looking at you and maybe even passing notes. I hope our students aren't listening to this, but yes, we do pass each other notes. And there were a couple of lines that I think got to both of us. And one was this American carnage stops right here and stops right now. And then another and I think this is really where we both knew what was being said. From this moment on, it's going to be America first. What has surprised you the most about the last four years? Uh, a lot, unfortunately, has not been surprising. Trump telegraphed a lot of his approach in his campaign, uh, the coded language, America first, of course, being a reference to the isolationists uh, before the Second World War. I suppose one thing that has surprised me is the absolute lack of resistance within the Republican Party. I realized most Republicans were going to go along with Trump, but uh, it was a bit surprising and disillusioning that uh, his takeover of the party was uh, was pretty close to absolute. Now, they've broken with him on certain specific issues, but uh, when it comes to criticizing him for things like Charlottesville and, uh, and all the rest, it's uh, stunning to see how supine they've been. And uh, this is something that continues unto this day with his refusal to uh, accept the results of the election. So I was going to ask you about this later, but let's talk about it right now, which is this, that's exactly what has been the most surprising to me as well. The fact that the Republicans who are elected, who are part of the establishment, have, in my perception, in no way acted as a guardrail 
you're an expert on American politics and policy and the presidency. Why is this happening? Why have they not said enough country over party? And frankly, you know, again, from a president who doesn't even appear to me to be a Republican in the true sense of what that means. It's a great question. I think a lot of it boils down to two words, primary voters. Most Republicans aren't afraid of losing in a general election. You know, the incumbency advantage is a real thing. And if you look at the Senate results, most of the uh, senators uh, ran ahead of Trump, not behind him. It's not as if there are a lot of people on Capitol Hill who owe their election to Donald Trump. They really don't. And you're right. He is not a Republican in many respects, but he has mobilized and energized Republicans and the electorate. And that's what really uh, gets people's attention on Capitol Hill, the prospect of losing a primary. Uh, didn't happen very often, but he was able to take out Mark Sanford of South Carolina, effectively take out Bob Corker of Tennessee and Jeff Flake of Arizona, who stepped down before what would probably have been a defeat in a primary. It only takes a few heads on a pike to get people's attention. And Republicans realized that if they took a principled stand against Trump, they'd be hearing from the folks back home and possibly lose their seat in the primary. So they made uh, a devil's bargain. They, uh, they knew who Trump was, and they decided to remain silent about his character. So I guess this brings up two questions for me. One, and well, one really isn't a question, which is that it's clear that these Republicans made a decision that they want to keep their job above seemingly keeping their ideals, moral standards. But the second question is, why is Trump so attractive to these primary voters? It's the mobilization of resentment. It's not necessarily based on issue positions. Trump doesn't really have that many convictions. Yeah, I'm reminded of the line from uh, The Best Man, where uh, Henry Fonda says to uh, Cliff Robertson, you have no sense of responsibility to anything or anyone, and that is a tragedy in a man, and it is a disaster in a president. In this case, it's a disaster and a president because the party's gone along with him, and they've gone along with him not because of what he stands for, but because of what he stands against. He's able to articulate and channel resentment, resentment of liberals, resentment of people who aren't old stock white. And that's how he gets cheers at MAGA rallies. It's not when he goes into detail about his tax policy. In fact, he makes fun of detailed policy proposals. He really, really revs up the crowd and mobilizes the electorate by telling them what they're against. That's always been part of politics, but really in the case of Donald Trump, it's the guts of what he's about. And uh, in many respects, that's a very disturbing development. Do you think that Democrats would have similarly been susceptible to somebody who could appeal to the primary voters and essentially be the Democratic version of Donald Trump? Or is there something about the Republican Party? Was there some sort of institutional weakness where the party kind of broke it open and allowed this to happen? 
It's a great question. Uh, I don't think the Democrats are immune to demagogues by any stretch of the imagination, but it would probably play out in a very different way. The uh, problem for the Republicans and why uh, it's played out the way it has with Trump is the demographic composition of the party. The great majority of Republicans in the electorate are whites without a college education. And uh, this is part of, the, uh, uh, of why there's so much resentment to be mobilized on that side. In 2016, for instance, a lot of Republicans really, really, really hated Hillary Clinton, not only because of the controversies from the 1990s, but because she reminded them of the kind of person who pushed them around, maybe the person who was in charge of their uh, their company for which they worked as a, in a low-level job. And uh, Trump was, if he has a genius, it's being able to uh, get into the guts of working-class people. And part of his appeal is that over the years, he's carefully held on to his outer borough accent. For those who aren't familiar with New York City, he didn't grow up in Manhattan. He grew up in Queens, a very affluent section of Queens, but Queens generally in the past was associated with, well, Archie Bunker. That was the uh, that was the borough in which all in the family was set. So I think that has a lot to do with his appeal and uh, the reason why it's taken the shape that it has in the Republican Party. There may be other kinds of uh, demagogic appeals on the Democratic Party, but it's, it, it wouldn't be any kind of doppelganger. Yeah, that's I mean, that's so interesting to think about even the accent and how he styled himself as this figure. And of course, he kind of played an executive on TV for a long period of time, and that probably has to have made a difference. In my book, I uh, quote a scholar who says that um, the insight is, uh, you know, Trump supporters don't resent rich people. They, they hardly ever have any contact with rich people uh, apart from television. They do resent professionals, people like Hillary Clinton. She reminded him of the people they sometimes came in contact with and resented. Trump was a fantasy character. So in that answer, you said something really interesting, which is basically they haven't met those people before. How much of President Trump's appeal, or how much of what's happening in America is about us not interacting with different people? I hate this term because it's so overused, but are we more polarized than we've ever been? Are there more fault lines between us than there have ever been? I wouldn't say ever, because there's always the example of the Civil War out there. We're not in 1860, which is a good thing but certainly more so than we've been in a very, very long time. And the polarization plays out in a variety of ways. Um, there is a certain degree of geographic sorting that goes on. Here in Los Angeles, for instance, you could shoot a cannon down Wilshire Boulevard and not hit a Republican. If you look at detailed precinct maps of the, of the city, you literally will see precincts where Democrats routinely get more than 90% of the vote. 
but there are also areas, even in California, uh, that are almost as heavily Republican. So some of it is geographical. Some of it is uh, is class. There really is uh, uh, an upper class. A book I've used in my introductory class, the author is very controversial for other reasons, but uh, Charles Murray's Coming Apart and his, uh, his central insight there, which, you know, leave aside other writings, but I think his uh, central insight there is very valid that you do have the rise of a new class that is both socially and physically separated from a lot of working people. And uh, that's something that gives rise to polarization. Uh, obviously, the media, much more so than in the past, it's possible to silo yourself in media that uh, only reinforce your own point of view. I am old enough to remember watching the 1960s via the three television networks, and uh, there were problems with that system, but basically everybody was watching the same reality unfold, very different today, and that reinforces uh, the polarization. And it's also a matter of sorting as well, and this gets into the more political science side. The parties have sorted themselves out. Uh, I remember the very first uh, vote I cast for the U.S. Senate was for a man named Jacob Javits. He was a Republican, but also he was more liberal than the vast majority of Democrats. And uh, at that time, you also had a number of uh, very, very conservative Southern Democrats. Well, they... Liberal Republicans are gone and the conservative uh, Southern Democrats are gone. You've got one conservative party and one liberal party. And um, many years ago, that's what political scientists were looking for, which is confirmation of the old uh, cliche, be careful what you wish for. Right. Now, let's think about what you wish for for the future of the Republican Party, because I know that you, you said, I left the party. I've never looked back. I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I, I suspect people like you and me are disaffected members of our parties in a sense where uh, we can't embrace either of the two parties. And I'm wondering what you think will be the future of the Republican Party. Just demographically, it doesn't appear to me that it's well situated to survive. Does it just become the party of Trump and embrace that? Uh, does it split off? Will there be two different parties for people who are right of center? What predictions do you have right now for the next maybe decade? Some of it depends on Trump himself. If he persists in trying to be the leader of the Republican Party, even out of office, that's one kind of a future. If he leaves, there could be at some point room for a different kind of a party, something more like uh, you know, the kind of uh, republicanism that Jack Kemp represented years ago. But even there, I'm not especially hopeful because if you look at the people who are thinking about running for president, they're all doing so in the name of Trump. Even Marco Rubio, whom I, a few years ago, I regarded as, uh, as somebody who could be a, a bright light for the party is uh, turned out to be a weather vane pointing in the direction of Hurricane Trump. So I don't know who that party leader would be. At the level of candidate recruitment, however, it is actually pretty interesting. The Republicans 
at uh, the state and local level, the people who do recruitment for the party actually kind of recognize what the problem is. And there was a remarkable feature of the 2020 congressional elections that probably hasn't gotten enough attention. There were 13 seats that Republicans flipped from Democrat to Republican. Every single one, the Republican winner was a woman or a member of an ethnic minority. So that's an indication that at some level, Republicans realize what their problem is. The trouble is the candidate recruitment doesn't necessarily reflect the reality in the electorate. You know, Republicans have, uh, have long sought candidates from um, the uh, Hispanic and Asian and African-American communities. There's an old cynical joke uh, in the Republican Party. Uh, you know, what, what do you call a black guy at a Republican dinner? And the answer is the after-dinner speaker. Uh, and um, Oof, that's rough, yeah. Yeah. And um, it's not clear that there's going to be a lot of demographic change in the party. Yeah, it, I mean, this will be one of the things that will be most interesting to see going forward. And I know that you will be watching and commenting. And before our time is up, I mean, I, I would love to spend hours talking with you about the Trump administration and situating this historically one more question on Trump, and then I want to look forward for a moment. Can you situate President Trump for us historically in the sense that, you know, it's, it's almost a hallmark card at this point to say he's the worst president we've ever had. Is that accurate? Do we need to wait for the history books to be written to have a little emotional distance? Or is it clear from what we already know? Yeah, uh, you know, there could be a trivia contest among historians as to whether he's worse than Buchanan. There are a couple of presidents down there in the basement that you uh, could compare him with, but he's definitely in that basement somewhere across the board. Uh, just start with COVID. The United States has a death rate two and a half times that of Canada, uh, which is the country that political scientists like to compare ourselves to. So literally, there are thousands of Americans who have passed away who would probably be alive if we had a different president. So that alone puts him into the basement. If you look at his embrace of dictators, his attitude toward Russia, the decline in U.S. standing in the world, and uh, here I reflect my old-fashioned republicanism, the massive increase in the federal debt, even before the pandemic. This has been uh, a really awful presidency. And uh, as we learn more, as information is declassified, as court cases proceed and documents become public, I suspect we're going to have an even more negative view of Trump the more we learn. That's exactly my take. I don't think that he's going to suddenly look better from a historical lens. In fact, I think that we will just see the greater erosion of norms, of stability, of ethics, of morals, of respect for the rule of law. And as you said, um, you didn't put it this way. I would put it this way. I think he literally has blood on his hands. I think that thousands of Americans have died as a result of his, at best, negligence and at worst, um, well, I would say active campaign of disinformation. 
Yeah, and when it comes to character, some people have um, compared him to Nixon, which I think is very unfair to Nixon. Nixon did awful things. You know, as I tell my students, I teach a whole course on Nixon. Every bad thing you say about Nixon is true, but every good thing you say about Nixon is true. On the one hand, he said things about African-Americans that would make David Duke blush. On the other hand, he integrated more schools than all other previous presidents put together. So he, he was a president of contradictions. With Trump, there are no contradictions. He's just bad to the bone. Yeah, you know, we really have lacked nuance when it comes to our discussion of Nixon because there's so much really to revile about him. But as you said, he's a complicated character. And I hope that at some point, maybe I can audit that class. Now, I want to move a little bit in terms of looking forward. We're going to have a new administration in a few days. And are you hopeful about this administration and how much of the Biden administration hinges on what's going to happen in Georgia? Hopeful because one simple thing, Joe Biden is a good man. I don't necessarily agree with all of his policies. And I speak as an old Republican opposition researcher. I did oppo on him. So I could go on for hours about his policy shortcomings, but he's basically a good human being. And that alone is an enormous change from what we have right now. When it comes to policy, he's not going to make things worse. And again, compared with what we have, that is a huge step forward. What can he accomplish? He can bring basic competence to government that will help enormously over the months ahead with the rollout of the vaccine. He can reverse Trump's executive orders on issues ranging from uh, immigration to the environment. That will be a plus. Legislatively, not sure that we can expect a great deal, even if the Democrats win both seats in Georgia. That's uh, a very tenuous margin. One uh, member can hold the whole chamber hostage. So I don't think he's uh, going to be able to accomplish a great deal of controversial legislation. The one thing he could get if, the uh, again, the two seats flip and uh, they don't get any party switchers, uh, he can start to change the judiciary. There'll be a lot of 50-50 votes in that case, and uh, Kamala Harris will probably not be able to leave Washington very often for having to cast the tiebreakers. But um, I, I think he will be able to get his way on judicial appointments, executive appointments, and that matters. But as far as major legislation, uh, not going to happen in the next couple of years. Basic competence as a new thing for America really is an amazing statement, and I could not agree with you more. Now, Dr. Jack Pitney, we learned a lot from you. I would like to learn a little bit more about you. Listeners of the podcast know I end episodes with the same three questions for our guests. They're meant to be a little more lighthearted than the meaty topics that we just talked about. So if you'll indulge me, here we go. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? It's kind of a cliche, but Winston Churchill, because he did so many things in his life. He was a prisoner of war in the Boer War, leadership in World War I, World War II, 
made many great decisions and made many awful mistakes. And that's, that's kind of like Nixon, good things, World War II, bad things, India and colonialism. He was a writer. He literally made his living writing. And so I just think it would be an endless source of fascination to sit down and talk with him, particularly after a few alcoholic beverages. History does indicate that that might be a freer discussion, yes. <laughs> Which actually brings us to our second question, in a way. You're going to be stranded on a desert island, and you can bring one meal with you. What is it and why? This is going to sound weird and wonky, <laughs> and it's not intended as a commercial, uh, but Metrix chocolate chip cookie dough protein bars. I basically exist on those things already. The reason is, if you look at the label, it's got the vitamins and minerals, it's filling, and it tastes good too. So you could actually survive on those things, um, particularly during the year when I'm pressed for time. That's my lunch. So if I uh, had a sufficient supply of those, I'd be happy. I'm not going to pass judgment on that. Uh, and last, <laughs> last question, you get one superpower for an hour. What is it and why? Flight. When I was a kid, literally before I could read, I was looking at Superman comic books. And, uh, you know, some people would say invisibility, but I would reject invisibility because I'm a klutz. And if I were invisible, I know that I would get hit by a, a tractor trailer the first time I stepped out in the street. That wouldn't work. But flight would be way cool. I would love to uh, fly over the uh, the world and get an aerial view the way Superman could. Dr. Jack Pitney, from one klutz to another, I had a great time talking with you. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Well, thank you. Dr. Jack Pitney is the author of The Politics of Autism from 2015, After Reagan from 2019, and his new book, Un-American, The Fake Patriotism of Donald J. Trump from 2020. You can find Dr. Pitney on Twitter at jpitney. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you to our listeners, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.